people. There's nothing to fight for. There's no more honor. Come to think of it, the only honorable thing to do is quiet. Jackswick Collective. Um, it's just me, Yana, here talking on the mic. It's about 6.30, um, March 26, on a Thursday evening. And I'm sitting here by myself in my apartment, looking at the city. It's a bit of a rainy day. Um, but I'm sitting here because I have been thinking for a long time about the podcast and how difficult it is to actually sit down and record one of these things. It's almost um, like doing something like yoga. You know it's good for you. You know you're going to enjoy it. But it's so damn hard to sit down and actually do the yoga. And the podcast is pretty much the same thing. So anyways, the podcast is going to come back, especially in these crazy strange times of ours where we're spending more and more of our days at home trust that we'll have some more episodes on the horizon but i've been thinking about a lot about the podcast more generally and kind of ways that we can use the platform of audio Uh, myself brendan and oliver um, both of this group but as individuals as well and i really envision the jacksway collective from the very beginning to be a platform for our own as well as other people's creative and interesting ideas. So here I am sitting in front of the mic by myself and my version of a creative idea is not very creative at all, Um, but I really want to read a book. I love reading. Obviously, this is a super core part of my life and something that I just absolutely love. Um, And... I'm going to read one of my favorite books. Now, it's going to be interesting. Uh, I'm just looking it up online to see if there's an audiobook, and I don't think that there is. So what I have in mind here is I am going to read Albert Camus' The Fall. Now, this is one of my favorite books. I read it every single year, Um, and it's kind of perfect for something like a podcast because the book is merely five very short chapters. Um, So I have this vision where I'm going to sit in front of the microphone. I might read for 20 or so minutes to the mic, and then I'm immediately going to stop with no editing. I'm just going to talk about the chapter, what I take from it, my thoughts, anything like that. So it's, it's kind of, you can't go wrong if you're interested at all in this. Um, If you've read the book before and you don't want to listen to me read, go ahead and check the timestamp. I will mark where you need to go to just go straight to my thoughts or discussion. Um, But if you haven't read the book, it's a super digestible, short book that's uh, uh, full of dialogue. And so the medium of a podcast might actually do something interesting to this book because for the most part, it's about one single man ranting for uh, 
four or five chapters um, or 100 pages or so. And so I was just sitting around these days, as we all do, thinking about a bunch of things. And usually around this time of the year anyways, I pick up a copy of The Fall. I read this book every single year. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's probably the way to to integrate something that you want to do on a personal level into the podcast. Um, so this is it. I'm going to be reading aloud. Um, if you're not interested in me reading, then skip ahead, listen to my discussion. I'm going to do five episodes of these for each chapter. Um, and yeah, if you're interested in that, please stick around. If not, I realize that probably there's a very small subset of people out there who would even be interested in something like this. But if you are, then um, let's do this thing. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I will just give a little bit about the book before I dive into it. But basically, it's a story about one man. Um, his name is Jean-Baptiste Clements. He um, was a wealthy and famous lawyer um, who I believe the majority of his work was done on criminal defense. And basically how this book is set up, as you'll soon find out, is he is in a bar. And he meets this unnamed person and he decides to go on a five-day confession with him. And so I kind of don't really have much else. I'd love to just go in blind to a book like this. I'm going to go ahead and read. Um, I'm not going to edit it much or at all. So there might be moments where I screw up a word or have to re-say a sentence. Apologies in advance, but this is not going to be a highly produced audible production. This is me in my dining room. So regardless, I hope you can enjoy. Um, and yeah, thanks as always for listening to the podcast. It's always so cool to know that there are some people out there um, who are interested in this kind of thing. And, you know, if you're out there and you're bored out of your brains while quarantined and, you know, you're thinking about ways to take in some new content, if this can be at all a help to you to, to get your brain going or provide something novel or interesting in your life in the days where we spend it in our homes or our apartments, then um, if I have that effect on even one person, then this is totally worth it. Um, so, okay, I'm going to stop rambling. I'm going to dive right in. <clears throat> but thank you very much, everyone. Um, this is episode one of Albert Camus' The Fall. May 1st. Monsieur. Offer my services without running the risk of intruding? I fear you may not be able to make yourself understood by the worthy ape who presides over the fate of this establishment. In fact, he speaks nothing but Dutch. Unless you authorize me to plead your case, he will not guess that you want gin. There, I dare hope he understood me. That nod must mean that he yields to my arguments. He is taking steps, indeed. He is making haste with prudent deliberation. You were lucky. He didn't grunt. When he refuses to serve someone, he merely grunts. No one insists. Being master of one's moods is the privilege of larger animals. Now I shall withdraw, monsieur. 
Happy to have been of help to you. Thank you. I'd accept if I were sure of not being a nuisance. You are too kind. Then I shall bring my glass over beside yours. You are right. His silence is deafening. It's the silence of, a, of the primeval forest, heavy with threats. At times, I am amazed by his obstinacy in snubbing civilized languages. His business consists in entertaining sailors of all nationalities in this Amsterdam bar, which for that matter he named no one knows. Why? Mexico City. With such duties, wouldn't you think there might be some fear that his ignorance would be awkward? Fancy the crow magnon man lodged in the Tower of Babel. He would certainly feel out of his element. Yet this one is not aware of his exile. He goes on his own sweet way and nothing touches him. One of the rare sentences I have ever heard from this mouth proclaimed that you could take it or leave it. What did one have to take or leave? Doubtless our friend himself. I confess I am drawn by such creatures who are all of a piece. Anyone who has considerably meditated on man, by profession or vocation, is led to feel nostalgia for the primates. They at least don't have any ulterior motives. Our host, to tell the truth, has some, although he harbors them deep within him. As a result of not understanding what is said in his presence, he has adopted a distrustful disposition. Whence that look of touchy dignity, as if he at least suspected that all is not perfect among men, that disposition makes it less easy to discuss anything with him that does not concern his business. Notice, for instance, on the back wall above his head, that empty rectangle marking the place where a picture has been taken down. Indeed, there was a picture there, and a particularly interesting one, a real masterpiece. Well, I was present when the master of the house received it and when he gave it up. In both cases, he did so with the same distrust, after weeks of rumination. In that regard, you must admit that society has somewhat spoiled the frank simplicity of his nature. Mind you, I am not judging him. I consider his distrust justified and should be inclined to share it if, as you see, my communicative nature were not opposed to this. I am talkative, alas, and make friends easily. Although I know how to keep my distance, I seize any and every opportunity. When I used to live in France, were I to meet an intelligent man, I immediately sought his company. If that be foolish, ah, uh, I see you smile at that use of the subjunctive. I confess my weakness for that mood and for fine speech in general. A weakness that I criticize in myself, believe me. I am well aware that an addiction to silk underwear does not necessarily imply that one's feet are dirty. Nonetheless, style, like sheer silk, too often hides eczema. My consolation is to tell myself that, after all, those who murder the language are not pure either. Why, yes, let's have another gin. Are you staying long in Amsterdam? A beautiful city, isn't it? Fascinating. There's an adjective I haven't heard in some time. Not since leaving Paris, in fact, years ago. But the heart has its own memory, and I have forgotten nothing of our beautiful capital, nor of its quays. Paris is a real trompe l'oeil, a magnificent stage setting inhabited by four million silhouettes. Nearly five million at the last census. Why, they must have multiplied. 
And that wouldn't surprise me. It's always seemed to me that our fellow citizens had two passions, ideas and fornication. Without rhyme or reason, so to speak. Still, let us take care not to condemn them. They are not the only ones. For all of Europe is in the same boat. I sometimes think of what future historians will say of us. A single sentence will suffice for modern man. He fornicated and he read the papers. After that vigorous definition, the subject will be, if I may say so, exhausted. Oh, not the Dutch. They are much less modern. They have time, just look at them. What do they do? Well, these gentlemen over here live off the labors of those ladies over there. All of them, moreover, both male and female, are very middle-class creatures who have come here, as usual, out of mythomania or stupidity. Through too much or too little imagination, in short. From time to time, these gentlemen indulge in a little knife or revolver play, but don't get the idea that they're keen on it. Their role calls for it, that's all. And they are dying of fright as they shoot it out. Nevertheless, I find myself more moral than the others. Nevertheless, I find them more moral than the others, those who kill in the bosom of the family by attrition. Haven't you noticed that our society is organized for this kind of liquidation? You have heard, of course, of those tiny fish in the rivers of Brazil that attack the unwary swimmer by thousands and with swift little nibbles clean him up in a few minutes, leaving only an immaculate skeleton? Well, that's what their organization is. Do you want a good, clean life like everybody else? You say yes, of course. How can one say no? You'll be cleaned up. Here's a job, a family, and organized leisure activities. And the little teeth attack the flesh right down to the bone. But I am unjust. I should say their organization. I shouldn't say their organization. It is ours, after all. It is a question of which will clean up the other. Here is your gin at last, to your prosperity. Yes, the ape opened his mouth to call me a doctor. In these countries, everyone is a doctor or a professor. They like showing respect, out of kindness and out of modesty. Among them, at least, spitefulness is not a national institution. Besides, I am not a doctor. If you want to know, I was a lawyer before coming here. Now I am a judge penitent. But allow me to introduce myself. Jean-Baptiste Clements, at your service. Pleased to know you. You are in business, no, no, no doubt. In a way, excellent reply. Judicious, too. In all things, we are merely in a way. Now, allow me to play the detective. You are my age, in a way, with the sophisticated eye of the man in his 40s who has seen everything. In a way, you are well-dressed, in a way. That is, in the people are, that is, as people are in our country. And your hands are smooth. Hence a bourgeoisie, in a way. But a cultured bourgeoisie. Smiling at the use of subjunctive. In fact, it proves your culture twice over because you recognize it to begin with, and then because you feel support, superior to it, you laugh. Lastly, I amuse you. And be it said without any vanity, this implies in you a certain open-mindedness. Consequently, you are, in a way. But no matter. Professions interest me less than sex. Allow me to ask you two questions and don't answer if you consider them indiscreet. Do you have any possessions? Some. Good. Have you shared them with the poor? No. Then you are what I call a seducee. 
If you are not familiar with the scriptures, I admit that this won't help you, but it does help you. So you know the scriptures. Decidedly, you interest me. As for me, well, judge for yourself. By my stature, my shoulders, and this face that I have often been told was shy, I rather look like a rugby player, don't I? But if I am judged by my conversation, I have to be granted a little subtlety. The camel that provided the hair for my overcoat was probably mangy, yet my nails are manicured. I, too, am sophisticated, and yet I confide in you. Without causation, without caution, on the sole basis of your looks. Finally, despite my good manners and my fine speech, I frequent sailors' bars in the Zijik. Come on, give up. My profession is double, that's all, like the human being. I have already told you, I am a judge penitent. Only one thing is simple in my case. I possess nothing. Yes, I was rich. No, I shared nothing with the poor. What does that prove? That I, too, was a Sadducee? Oh, do you hear the foghorns in the harbor? There will be fog tonight on the Zuder Z. You're leaving already. Forgive me for having perhaps detained you. No, I beg you. I won't let you pay. I am at home at Mexico City, and have been particularly pleased to receive you here. I shall certainly be here tomorrow, as I am every evening, and I shall be pleased to accept your invitation. Your way back? Well, but if you don't have any objection, the easiest thing would be for me to accompany you as far as the harbor. Since, by going around the Jewish quarter, you'll find those fine avenues with their parade of streetcars full of flowers and thundering sounds. Your hotel is on one of them. The Damrak. You first, please. I live in the Jewish quarter, or what was called so, until our Hitlerian brethren made room. What a clean-up. 75,000 Jews deported or assassinated. That's a real vacuum cleaning. I admire that diligence, that methodical patience. When one has no character, one has to apply a method. Here it did wonders incontrovertibly, and I am living on the site of one of the greatest crimes in history. Perhaps that's what helps me to understand the ape and his distrust. Thus, I can struggle against my natural inclination, carrying me towards fraternizing. When I see a new face, something sounds in me that sounds the alarm. Slow, danger. Even when the attraction is strongest, I am on my guard. Do you know that in my little village, during a punitive operation, a German officer courteously asked an old woman to please choose which of her two sons would be shot as a hostage. Choose? Can you imagine that? That one? No, this one. And see him go. Let's not dwell on it, but believe me, monsieur, any surprise is possible. I knew a pure, pure heart who rejoiced. I knew a pure heart who rejected distrust. He was a pacifist and a libertarian, and loved all humanity and the animals with equal love. An exceptional soul, that's certain. Well, during the last wars of religion in Europe, he had retired to the country. He had written on his threshold, Wherever you come from, come in and be welcome. Who do you think answered that noble invitation? The militia, who made themselves at home and disemboweled him. Oh, pardon, madame, but she didn't understand a word of it anyways. All these people, eh? Oh, it's so late, despite this rain which hasn't let up for days. Fortunately, there is Jim, the sole glimmer of light in this darkness. 
Do you feel the golden copper-colored light it kindles in you? I like walking through the city of an evening in the warmth of gin. I walk for nights on end. I dream or talk to myself interminably. Yes, like this evening, and I fear making your head swim somewhat. Thank you, you are most courteous. But it's the overflow. As soon as I open my mouth, sentences start to flow. Besides, this country inspires me. I like these people swarming on the sidewalks, wedged into a little space of houses and canals, hemmed by in by fogs, cold lands, and the sea steaming like a wet wash. I like them, for they are double. They are here and elsewhere. Yes, indeed, for hearing their heavy tread on the damp pavement, from seeing them move heavily between their shops full of gilded herrings and jewels the color of dead leaves, you probably think they are here this evening. You are like everybody else. You take these good people for a tribe of syndics and merchants counting their gold crowns with their chances of eternal life, whose only lyricism consists in occasionally, without doffing their broad-brimmed hats, taking autonomy lessons? You were wrong. They walk along with us, to be sure, and yet see where their heads are, in that fog compounded of neon, gin, and mint emanating from the shop signs above them. Holland is a dream, monsieur, a dream of gold and smoke, smokier by day, more gilded by night. And night and day that dream is propelled with lone grins like these, dreamily riding their black bicycles with their high handlebars, funeral swans constantly drifting throughout the whole land, around the seas, along the canals. Their heads in the copper-colored clouds. They dream, they cycle in circles, they pray. Sonambulist in the fog's gilded incense, they have ceased to be here. They have gone thousands of miles away towards Java, the distant isle. They pray to those grimacing gods of Indonesia with which they have decorated all their shop windows and which at this moment are floating aimlessly above us before alighting like sumptuous monkeys on the signs and stepped roofs to remind those homesick colonials that Holland is not only the Europe of merchants, but also the sea, the sea that leads to Chipango and all those islands where men die mad and happy. But I am letting myself go. I am pleading a case. Forgive me. Habit, monsieur. Vocation. Also, the desire to make you fully understand the city and the heart of things. For we are at the heart of things here. Have you noticed that Amsterdam's concentric canals resemble the circles of hell? The middle-class hell, of course. Peopled with bad dreams. When one comes from the outside as one gradually goes through these circles, life, and hence its crimes, becomes denser, darker. Here we are in the last circle. The circle of the... Ah, you know that. By heaven. You become harder to classify. But you understand, then, why I can say that the center of things is here. Although we stand at the tip of the continent, a sensitive man grasps such oddities. In any case, the newspaper readers and the fornicators can go no further. They come from the four corners of Europe and stop facing the intersea on the drab strand. They listen to the fog horns, vainly trying to make out the silhouettes of boats in the fog, then turn back over the canals and go home through the rain. Chilled to the bone, they come and ask in all languages for gin at Mexico City. There I wait for them. Till tomorrow then, monsieur, a cher compatriot. No, you will easily find your way now. I'll leave you near this bridge. I'll never cross a bridge at night. It's the result of a vow. Suppose, after all, that someone should jump in the water. One of two things. 
Either you do likewise to fish him out, or you... One of two things. Either you do likewise to fish him out, and in cold weather you run great risk, or you forsake him there, and suppressed drives sometimes leave one strangely aching. Good night. What? Those ladies behind those windows? Dream, monsieur. Cheap dream. A trip to the Indies. Those persons perfume themselves with spices. You go in. They draw the curtains and the navigation begins. The gods come down onto the naked bodies and their islands are set adrift. Lost souls crowned with it. The tousled hair of palm trees in the wind. Try it. Okay, so that's the first chapter. Um, again, very short, only about 15 pages from the book itself. Um, so this is one of five chapters. This is, I believe, the shortest of all of them. So it's a good way for us to start. Um, so I've read this book a number of times. I really, really love this book. Um, and I think that this is a book that I get so much out of every single time that I read it. Um, but there's this really interesting phenomena when you love something so much and you've brewed on it so much and you think about it so much, you know, you have such a clear idea of why you love it. Um, and then you show it to someone else for the first time. Um, this can be the case with a book or a movie or a TV show or anything. And you, so it's so obviously clear to you why you love this book or this TV show or this piece of art you're sharing with someone it's already been proven to you, um, but there's a bit of a dance that happens with the other person. They're watching it, and maybe they don't like it. Maybe they're not feeling it. Maybe they take longer to connect with it or whatever it is. And maybe at the end, they do end up seeing the same things that you do in the book or a movie or a TV show, or they don't. Um, and yeah, either way, is totally fine, but I'm just reading this first chapter to you, and I realize... Uh, to go into a little bit of analysis, like this first chapter is disorienting. It's comes at you very strangely. You kind of don't know what's going on. It's all over the place. And I can only imagine what it's like to be walking, listening to a podcast and having me, a non-professional uh, guy in his living room, read to you um, who's screwing up the odd word or some sentences. Um, I'm so curious to hear how that um, comes back, but it's just very interesting. When you read the first chapter of this book, I can imagine you're almost a bit turned off. This guy, Jean-Baptiste Clements, is totally full of himself. He's arrogant. He's cynical. He's a bit annoying. He jumps all over the place between these long, arduous monologues or hot takes that he has. Um, and then he just goes back to conversation with the, this person next to him. Um, and it's sometimes not even a clear, it's not even clear when he does that. He can do that in a matter of a couple of words or a line or two. All of a sudden he's totally changed topic or he's changed what he's talking about. And on top of that, he is just railing on um, Dutch people, Amsterdam, Holland. He literally calls it the circles of hell um, and how interesting that this man 
Jean-Baptiste likes to frequent and spends the majority of his time at the very center of what he calls hell. He has chosen to occupy this strange bar called Mexico City in the middle of Amsterdam, in the middle of what he defines as where hell is. That is where this man chooses to spend his life and talk and talk and talk. That should tell you something very interesting about the character himself. Um, And as we learn more about him in the later chapters, um, it's really interesting to have this first chapter front of mind because this is your first impression of Jean-Baptiste, who he is. Um, And quite honestly, when you read this first chapter, (laughs) he's not a particularly impressive character. Um, He's grating, he's annoying, he's full of hot takes. I've already said all of this, but I can imagine reading the first chapter and listening to the first chapter of this book. You're like, I hate this character. It's totally understandable. And I don't even think that the intention is for you to like him at all. Um, So we have our character. Hopefully we're going to learn more about him um, to talk about plot a little bit. Um, One of the things that when you read this book or you get it for the first time, it's you're thrown so in the middle of things, you don't know what's going on. But what is happening amongst this incredibly flowery, all-over-the-place language is you have a man. He's sitting in a bar. The bar is in Amsterdam. The bar is called Mexico City. And he stumbles upon a stranger who is never named. And he decides to have a conversation with him. And so there are moments in the book where it is implied that the character, this unnamed character, has responded or has said something but you're not actually privy to what he says or his dialogue. Instead, you're supposed to refer to what Jean-Baptiste says in response to really understand what it is this unnamed character has said. So um, again, maybe if, if you guys are listening to this this far, grab the book, grab it and read along with me because it is a book I think that you need to pay very close attention to to follow. Um, and again, subsequent readings really, really make it better and better. Um, but yes, this unnamed character is actually um, a character in the book. He just doesn't have any lines. The entire book itself is one long, long monologue by Jean-Baptiste. And it's an interesting way to present the novel because there's no back and forth dialogue. There's no third, like, omniscient third-party omniscient description of the situation or the people or anything like that is an entirely first-person narrative from the perspective of basically uh, Jean Clemence's monologue. And maybe first-person isn't even the right way to put it because you're not even really getting any insight into the mind of Jean Baptiste. All that you are getting is what's coming out of his mouth endlessly. Um, You're getting this kind of maybe stream of consciousness version, but you don't actually get any insight from a third party into the mind of this character. All that you get is what he says, and you have to infer what might be going on in in his mind based on what he says. So he can rail on about Dutch people, he can rail on about Europe, um, and make these incredibly cynical comments um, about you know, the Jews or the Holocaust or the woman having to choose between her two sons or daughters. Um, 
this is the this is the spew that comes out of his mouth but you have to infer the way that he's talking about it what he's thinking about where he is where he's chosen to be and who he's talking to to really get a sense of this guy's inner life and we'll be able to i think explore that more in later chapters but um that's really i think the first key takeaway in my opinion from the first chapter of this book um the second thing is that it's very difficult it's a very difficult book um i think i like this book so much because it's something that i have to really focus in on every single time i read it and it's tough to follow along but when you do take your time and you go slowly um, and you understand the character and why he is the way that he is um, every single time that i read it even um, reading it aloud five minutes ago there's so much in there that is foreshadowing or mentioning later parts of the book or is referencing other areas um, and so there's a lot of reward for me in that and now I just to give you one quick mention where, where he's talking about not wanting to cross the bridge and he gives you the two reactions to being on the bridge um, just keep that in front of mind for later chapters um, because that's one of the most important things that he is foreshadowing here. Um, but to talk more broadly, this book is a perfect example of the value of rereading things or re-experiencing things because we really do, I used to be of the mind like, okay, I'm going to read something, I'm going to take it in, I'm going to take in what I, whatever from it, and I'm going to move on to the next thing. And I'm going to move on to the next film. I'm going to move on to the next book, to the next TV show. And it's all about volume. Um, but one of the things that I think I've gotten better at and have um, totally changed my track on as I've gotten older um, is rereading, re-watching, re-experiencing things. And that can be just as, if not more valuable, than the first run-through. Um, and I don't think that you should reread at the cost of not reading anything new but i think that it should just be part of your tool belt you should be out there experiencing new novels experiencing new films um while also spending time to go back to some of the things that you hold so dear and by going back to them and actually carving out time for the things that you loved the first time around they only become more dear to you they only become more important and you can only take more and more out of it um the great pieces of art that we experience in our lives are actually, <laughs> to put it in a kind of strange and funny analogy, as I'm thinking aloud, it's like a sponge. Um, you can squeeze it a little bit the first time you, uh, you know, read through, but there's so much more juice in there. There's so much more to take in, um, and there is no better way to find value for yourself in art than going to re-experience and relearn and learn even more from the things that you already hold so dearly. Um, and I think that that's maybe one of the reasons that I started this audio project is, yeah, I've read this book. This is going to be my fourth or fifth run through, I think. Um, but I just read it and I don't do anything with it. Uh, I just think on it. I ponder on it. But now I'm just here to talk. I'm here to read it aloud. And I'm here to think aloud about these chapters. And I'm going to go very slowly. I'm going to discuss and deliberate on each of these chapters um, and that's really the whole purpose of why I'm doing this. Um, and if there's anyone out there who is actually interested in this book or Albert Camus or 
even just this process or this method of thinking aloud about the things that you've just read, um, then yeah, I think that this is awesome. I think that this is a great medium. I think this is sometimes this is something that lends itself really well to something like a podcast. Um, and so that's why I'm here. It's kind of for my own gain as well as trying to find some people out there who are into doing something as ridiculous as reading a book out loud on a podcast and then talking about it off the cuff right afterwards. Um, but when you have all the time in the world and you want to focus on uh, creative projects, you got you to gotta try some things out like this. So um, that's really it. That's the first chapter. We've got four more of these. Um, so if you're into it, if you've made it this far, I'm blown away. Um, well done. Um, I really appreciate it. I think it's awesome that you're into this stuff too. Um, otherwise, thanks as always for listening to the Jacksonway Collective and all of the uh, side projects involved with that. Um, but yeah, I'm going to end it here. Thank you very much, guys. 